This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. So, uh, 4th of July. We just finished 4th of July weekend, and as Christian Finnegan put it, 4th of July this year feels like attending a birthday party for someone in hospice. And I think that that is the truest tweet that I've ever seen because we are witnessing the breakdown of American society. So celebrating feels awkward to put it mildly. So 4th of July weekend started with 100 masked white supremacists from the group Patriot Front marching through Boston. And it ended with hundreds of Americans running for their lives following reports of an active shooter at Ben Franklin Parkway in Philadelphia. And really, none of this is surprising because when the government fails to meet the most basic needs of its citizens, when it lets ongoing crises get worse and worse, when it can't even really govern, we start to witness the breakdown of society. We see more political instability, we see more violence, and that was all on full display over 4th of July weekend. Now, the least surprising thing that took place over the weekend was, of course, another mass shooting that happened at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park, Illinois, where six people were killed and 38 were injured, at the time that I record this at least. Now, the suspect, Bobby Crimo, reportedly planned this attack for weeks. He shot at people with an AR-15 from a nearby rooftop, and later on in the evening, police found him and they apprehended him peacefully. Now, peaceful is a key word because it's going to play into a different story that we're going to talk about. But nonetheless, take a look at the mass shooting suspect being arrested. It's a shooter. Yeah. Now, there's a lot to say about this mass shooting. First of all, um, this is another one that happened, which nobody is surprised by. But Biden just signed bipartisan gun control into law a couple of weeks ago. But yet we already see another mass shooting. Why is that? Well, it's because that bipartisan gun control didn't even do the bare minimum. It didn't establish federal standards. It didn't ban AR-15s, which one was used to kill six people and injure 38 at the 4th of July parade. So if you don't actually do anything meaningful to prevent gun violence and you just pass something so you can point to it as you doing something, well, nothing is going to change. And so, you know, we're seeing mass shootings continue to take place. He broadcasted his intent to do violence. He shared violence on social media. He planned this attack for weeks. And that gun law uh, that was just passed did not prevent this. Now contrast the way that Bobby Crimo was apprehended with the way that police in Akron, Ohio responded to 25-year-old Jalen Walker during a routine traffic stop where he decided to run from police. Now um, they're not going to peacefully apprehend him in this instance. Um, as you're going to see, they're going to be incredibly violent and just the forewarning this video is extremely disturbing.
Now, in case you weren't keeping counts, 90 shots were fired by police and 60 of them hit Jalen. He was shot 60 times. The mass shooting suspect, Bobby Crimo, wasn't shot a single time. He killed multiple people, but yet police in that instance managed to apprehend him peacefully. But Jalen stopped for an unknown uh, reason, traffic stop, presumably, shot 60 times. Now, as Julia Conley of Common Dreams reports, police claim Walker had fired a gun from his car, but his family disputes the claim, and Walker was reportedly unarmed when he left his vehicle and was chased on foot by the officers. Now, as Nina Turner puts it, the reason Robert Crimo is still alive and Jalen Walker is dead is structural anti-blackness, and that is absolutely correct. We've seen time and again mass shooting suspect after mass shooting suspect peacefully apprehended. And that's the way that it should be. But yet that same courtesy isn't extended to black Americans. They are still getting killed by the police. And we're, what, two years out from the George Floyd protests? Not a single thing has changed. And again, this goes back to the government being able to respond to crises. So these crises, if you just leave them unaddressed, they get worse and worse and worse and of course this leads to anger but when american citizens choose to exercise their first amendment right and vocalize displeasure with the government and their treatment these state-sanctioned murders against black americans well they uh, are met with more violence militarized police arrived to intimidate and later assault protesters and jolly good ginger who was there shared this video proving that despite the narrative from akron police or the mayor protesters were not really being unruly in this instance they were protesting but they were peacefully protesting they're allowed to do that but as you're going to see violence did break out but this time it was because of the cops, not the protesters. Take a look. They just want us to go home. This is a lawful assembly. They tear gasness. They tear gasness. Don't worry about it. It's just tear gas. Don't worry about it. It's just tear gas. It just just sting a little bit. Oh shit. Yeah, it's tear gas. It's tear gas. All right, they're firing tear gas, guys. This tear gas. Fuck the police! See! See, go! Get your ass up here! Oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. Yeah, fuck them. Fuck them. They still shooting it. Look at it. They still shooting it. That, all right, they got me. They got me. That's all right. Hey, look. Hey, look. It's all right. It ain't the first time I've been tear gas. <laughs> ain't the first time. We good. We good. Hey, we good. That was just a little bit of tear gas. I just caught a couple whiffs of it. We good, baby. Let's go. I'm here to basically show you guys the aggressive Hey, look. Yeah, this is what's happening. Yeah. So the conclusion is that Americans are going to continue to be abused. If you respond to state-sanctioned violence with outrage, you will be met with more state-sanctioned violence. Now, mass shootings in this country will continue to happen. And if you expect the government to do anything about it that's actually meaningful, well, then you're horribly mistaken. The one thing that I think is consistent is we all know this is going to keep happening. Black Americans will continue to be murdered, 
by police. Mass shootings will continue to happen. And the government is going to allow this violence to continue because, again, it is incapable of governing. That is the only expectation that we all have. This is just going to keep happening and nobody reasonably expects anything to be done to address these crises, to address the obvious blatant racism in this system, the anti-blackness that is inherent within American institutions. So, yeah, happy 4th of July, everyone. Do you feel free? Do you feel like celebrating? You know, I myself really didn't. So, um, you know, if you had a reason to meet with family, have a barbecue or something, then I think that you shouldn't deny yourself that pleasure. But I mean, this is why a lot of people just don't feel very enthusiastic. We're losing civil rights and civil liberties. And the U.S. government is either violent against us directly or they enable violence through inaction. And we all expect this to keep happening because, again, the government has completely broken down and is incapable of doing the bare minimum to meet our needs and protect us. In fact, they're not just refusing to protect us. They're doing violence against us. And this will continue to happen until it all crumbles down. Before I've explained how Republicans pose a threat to U.S. democracy, and I think that more and more people are beginning to realize the ways in which they do indeed pose a threat to democracy, the problem is that there are still some individuals who believe that some Republicans, if they're not associated directly with Donald Trump, perhaps they're not as nefarious. But the problem is that's not actually true. So one thing that really comes to mind is this conversation that Bill Maher had a couple of weeks ago about Ron DeSantis and how he was preferable to Donald Trump because at least Ron DeSantis, unlike Trump, doesn't pose a direct threat to democracy. The problem is that that's not true. Sure, it is the case that some Republicans do not pose a direct threat to democracy, but there are so many elected Republican officials that pose a direct threat to democracy that I think that you can generalize and say most of them do and be pretty accurate especially when it comes to someone like ron DeSantis, who in no way is the savior of american democracy if he wins out compared to donald trump as brett bachman of salon explains public universities in florida will be required to survey both faculty and students on their political beliefs and viewpoints with the institutions at risk of losing their funding if the responses are not satisfactory to the state's republican-led legislature the unprecedented project, which was tucked into a law signed Tuesday by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, is part of a long-running nationwide right-wing push to promote intellectual diversity on campuses, though worries over a lack of details on the survey's privacy protections and questions over what the results may ultimately be used for hover over the venture. Based on the bill's language, survey responses will not necessarily be anonymous, sparking worries among many professors and other university staff that they may be targeted, held back in their careers, or even even fired for their beliefs. Now, individuals might see this and based on the wording of that text, think, okay, this is just Republicans playing into their victim complex, right? They are talking about how they're always purged from social media and how there's no ideological diversity on campuses. It's all leftists. And this is just them trying to push back and have more influence. 
but do not be fooled by them. This is a preemptive, deliberate attack on their ideological opponents so they can consolidate power nationwide at all levels of government. Let me remind you, this is not the first time that Ron DeSantis has attacked his ideological opponents. In this same state, he decriminalized running over protesters effectively. He banned protests outside of residential areas. He banned 41% of math books citing critical race theory as the reason. And because of his don't say gay law, attorneys for the Orange County School District are instructing teachers to remove photos of their same-sex spouses and out students to parents. And also what's happening in Florida is 13-year-olds are being arrested for the crime of protesting because Ron DeSantis has made it very clear that he doesn't want protests to be a common phenomenon unless it's the right-wingers who are doing it. Now, it's not like Ron DeSantis ordered the arrest of this 13-year-old that we're about to see, but this is the environment that he, as governor, has cultivated. Take a look. Lily, just don't resist! Lily, don't resist, honey, it's okay! I got you. What is the state statue? Lily, you're okay, Bug. I got you. Mom's right behind you. You're okay. Don't resist. My name's Renew, 76. What's their name? Oh, they have to tell you that. All right, hey, guys, bring in the law. Hey, you're okay, Bug. Mom's right here. Lily, you're okay. What's your name, sir? What's your name? Now, to be clear, nobody knew why that child was being arrested. Now, this is not something that we can view as an isolated incident. What's happening in Florida is not happening in a vacuum. We need to step back and look at the broader GOP project and how collectively they've agreed that democracy is an obstacle to their rule, to their authority. In fact, one of the most influential GOP operatives, Christopher Rufo, is openly bragging about a new plan to purge leftists from all of government. So he tweeted this out on July 1st. As we approach 2024, I will be publishing a policy paper on eliminating left-wing ideologies in federal government, using the power of the presidency to fundamentally reshape the bureaucracy with a six-part program targeting budget, content, personnel, grant-making, and oversight. The idea is to central ideological control over the federal agencies in the White House and create a team of the Office of Management and Budget to enforce it. We could easily wipe out a significant portion of the infrastructure for the left-wing ideologies within the federal bureaucracy and within the network of federal guarantees and contractors, which would shift American politics in the right direction. Now, when he says shift American politics in the right direction, he's not saying in the correct direction. He's saying literally in the right-wing direction. Now, Let's be clear, when he says left-wing ideologies, he doesn't just mean the far left or socialists. He's talking about liberals as well. Fascists go out of their way to purge political opponents, silent political opponents. And the reason why we're seeing all of this currently is because we are in the phase of legal fascism in the United States. But we'll get to that in a second because there's more on that. That's really important. Now, this, again, is not occurring in a vacuum. Not too long ago, Charlie Kirk, a prominent conservative propagandist, said that once the right takes power, they're not going to give it back and enjoy being completely politically irrelevant because once you get displaced from power we're not going to give it back republicans controlling republicans winning over hispanics will be the nail in the coffin and we're not going to give that power back right you see democrats will just become so unpopular that they'll never win another election again wink wink 
Meanwhile, all of this is happening in the background, where conservatives in these red states are consolidating their power. They're also gearing up to give Republicans nationally more power. The Supreme Court is stripping away civil rights and civil liberties. So people keep asking, you know, is it appropriate to call what's happening fascism? Refer to this as the rise of fascism in the United States. Now, I've made the case as to why this is indeed fascism and we have to treat it as such. But let's just look at the core tenets of fascism, according to Umberto Eco. It involves a cult of tradition, rejection of modernism, viewing disagreement as a form of treason. Now, we're not quite there yet, but the GOP, as you saw, is currently laying the groundwork to prosecute ideological opponents and purge them from government. That is fascism. Fear of difference, primarily intruders. We see this rhetoric all the time with regard to immigrants. Appear to social frustration, selective populism. We see this with Donald Trump, with Ron DeSantis, although they're not consistent. Oftentimes, we'll look at them as fake populism. But this is a tenet of fascism. The enemy is both strong and weak. We see this all the time. Liberals are hypersensitive snowflakes, but simultaneously, they're also very mean and scary. And they're taking over society and government to the point that we have to purge them from government. If you're Christopher Rufo, um, we see sexism, condemnation of homosexuality. This has ramped up over the last six months. And number 14, control of education. DeSantis banned textbooks, as I mentioned. A Texas school board proposed calling slavery involuntary relocation. So it's not like the modern GOP checks every single box, represents every core tenet of fascism, but they represent quite a bit, enough to where you should be alarmed, enough to where you should no longer be asking, is this or isn't this fascism, and you should now begin to question how long until the death camps are coming. And you might think that that's hyperbole, but would you rather be overly cautious and prepared or be naive and caught off guard. I mean, how far away are we until a President Trump or DeSantis signs a similar executive order to 9066, where they place LGBTQ plus people in internment camps, citing an imminent danger that they pose to children? They're already laying the groundwork for this, both socially, culturally, and legally as well. And if you think that that can't happen in America, ask Japanese Americans about that. FDR signed Executive Order 9066 that placed Japanese Americans along the West Coast in internment camps. And FDR was doing an explicitly fascist thing while he wasn't even a fascist himself. So imagine what kind of fascism actual fascists are going to carry out here in the United States. Now, if you haven't read Jason Stanley's How Fascism Works. I recommend it all the time. I would highly encourage you to read that because it is very illuminating. And more importantly, it's frightening. It serves as a wake-up call. Now, in a recent interview, he described how what we're witnessing currently is the legal stage of fascism. Take a look. It's a pivotal moment because right now we're seeing the legal mechanisms to steal an election being formalized. We're seeing uh, a system put in place that will enable permanent minority rule. You, you, you said that this is we are now in the legal phase and you see historical you see historical precedents for this. And you say it's almost like a, a, a conversation that has gone on for a century between the you know, Americans who have you know, fascist solutions to national problems and kind of the European experience. And you're saying now this sort of two-way conversation has resurgent, is resurgent in the United States through legal means. Many conservatives, many of the most prominent conservatives sort of scoff at the criticism of these 
what they call voter integrity measures. They say that some of these measures that are being enacted in in the southern states and also really in states around the country, that they're just trying to uh, implement voter integrity. They're just trying to give people confidence in our election systems. How do you respond to that? Always call, say about your opponent what you are yourself doing. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing massive projection. We're even seeing the fascist label being thrown at uh, at Democrats. Right. So projection is a standard propaganda tool. It was one that uh, Goebbels and Hitler both explicitly recommend, but it's not just fascists who who engage in it. But we're seeing this massive projection. It's almost like you can tell what the Republicans are doing by what they say the Democrats are doing. Well, we have to interrogate this. Uh, electoral integrity. What does that mean here? Well, you have to filter it through a kind of fascist loyalist lens, which means only the real people of the country should get to determine who the leaders are. And so it's not a really fair election if everyone gets to vote. And we're seeing this again and again. We're seeing Republicans, including uh, former President Trump say this. If we don't pass these laws, everyone will vote. We'll see them. Be, we're seeing them being very explicit. Uh, so the idea is that a, a real election is one where only, you know, the real Americans vote. And this goes back to uh, this idea, which is uh, unfortunately, unless things radically change, going to be a reality of a, a permanent minority running this country who, in the eyes of that minority, are the real Americans. He is absolutely correct. Now, this interview took place before we learned that the Supreme Court would be taking up the case of Moore v. Harper in their next session. Now, if you don't know, I have a video about Moore v. Harper and how significant that case is, but effectively, if the Supreme Court holds that independent state legislature theory is legitimate, then they will give state legislatures control over our presidential elections. So if, for example, in Arizona, a Democrat is elected by the public during a presidential election, they can just override the results of voters and send in their own electors to the Electoral College and unilaterally pick who their state chooses to be the next president. So when we see folks like Charlie Kirk say, once we obtain power, we're not going to give it back. Legally, they are laying the groundwork to do just that. Jason Stanley, an expert on this, is saying they are currently creating the legal framework for an authoritarian uh, fascist takeover. And there's still a number of people in this country who are denying that it's happening, denying that this is fascism. The time to wake up is right now. Acknowledge what we are dealing with. We are in the beginning stages of an authoritarian fascist takeover. And if you are not going to acknowledge it, then it could be too late. Wake up because it's here. Fascism is on our doorstep and the time to resist is right now. If you've been watching lately, you already know how I feel about the Biden administration's response to Roe v. Wade being overturned, or lack thereof, I should say. I'm incredibly angered and frustrated by the Biden administration's refusal to take meaningful action. And I mean, my expectations were very low. They were below the floor, but he even managed to surprise me with the way that he's handled this situation. And I'm not alone because Democrats agree 71% of Americans do not want Biden to seek a second term, even though he refuses to step down and announce that he'll only be running for one term. And he's even 
lost Deborah Messing. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a signal as to how bad he's doing. He lost Deborah Messing. Now, yes, that Deborah Messing, the celebrity. Now, you may be wondering, why do we care what Deborah Messing thinks? Well, because she has been one of the most vocal and loyal defenders of the Democratic Party. And even if you in so much as tepidly pointed out some critiques that you had with Biden in 2020, she was right there to scold you, scold you back into place. But even Deborah Messing, a worshiper of the Democratic Party, is saying this is unbelievable. So as CNN's Edward Isaac Dovere reports, Deborah Messing was fed up. The former Will & Grace star was among dozens of celebrity Democratic supporters and activists who joined a call with White House aides last Monday to discuss the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. The mood was fatalistic, according to three people on the call, which was also co-organized by the advocacy group Build Back Better Together. Messing said she'd gotten Joe Biden elected and wanted to know why she was being asked to do anything at all, yelling that there didn't even seem a point to vote. Others wondered why the call was happening. The call, three days after the decision eliminating federal abortion rights, encapsulates the overwhelming sense of frustration among Democrats with Biden. It offers a new window into what many in the president's party describe as a mismanagement permeating the White House. Top Democrats complain the president isn't acting with, or perhaps is even capable of, the urgency the moment demands. Rudderless, aimless, and hopeless is how one member of Congress described the White House. Two dozen leading Democratic politicians and operatives, as well as several within the West Wing, tell CNN they feel this goes deeper than questions of ideology and posture. Instead, they say it gets to questions of basic management. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. It's not just that he refuses to do anything. But the issue stems deeper than that. He insists that the only solution, the one true solution, is to vote. When voters worked very hard to give Democrats the majority that they have, is it ideal? No. You currently don't have the numbers needed to get rid of the filibuster or create an exception to the filibuster to codify Roe v. Wade. But if Biden were a leader, he wouldn't just accept that he doesn't have the numbers. He'd do what LBJ did to pass the Civil Rights Act. You use carrots, sticks, you make deals, you bargain, you use your bully pulpit. But Biden is just saying, mm, not going to do anything. Sorry, you've got to give us more seats. I mean, with your behavior, there's no guarantee that even if you expand your majority, you're going to do anything because you told voters that electing John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in Georgia would give you the numbers that you need to take action. But you're still not really delivering. Build back better, field, your core agenda item. And it's not just that Biden's response here has been feckless and horrible, but he's literally assisting the forced birthers. He's giving a forced birther a lifetime appointment to a federal court because of some deal that he struck with Mitch McConnell. So it's not just that he refuses to defend us as we lose our civil rights and civil liberties, but he is assisting the people who are doing harm to us, who are taking away our civil rights and civil liberties. And Roe hasn't even been gone for two weeks, and it's already been the disaster that we all said it would be. A 10-year-old in Ohio was denied an abortion. And as Greg Sargent points out, medical professionals in Louisiana just went on record saying the state's abortion ban will force them to choose between avoiding prosecution and treating pregnant women in grave medical danger. So, it hasn't been that long, and we're seeing stories where doctors are literally forced to choose between life and lawsuits, where they're forcing women with egg topic pregnancies to wait while they call lawyers and 
determine whether or not it's legal to save that woman's life. And Biden isn't just refusing to take action. He's uh, saying, let me nominate this forced birther to uh, a federal position. This is why people, people are outraged. This is why you're losing loyalists even, like Deborah Messing. Even she can see how outrageous the Biden administration's response has been. And I can't stop thinking about the answer to the question about how hard people worked, uh, you know, to give Democrats this majority. Shouldn't you act now when VP Harris said this? You're saying now, the president said that this fall, Roe is on the ballot. But what do you say to Democratic voters who argue, wait a minute, we worked really hard to elect a Democratic president yeah. and vice president, yeah. Democratic-led House, yeah. a Democratic-led Senate. Do it now. But do what now? Uh, what now? I mean, we, we need, we, listen, what we did, we extended the child tax credit for the well, first I'm year. Well, I'm sorry, when I say do right? what, yeah. do it now, yeah. act uh, legislatively to make abortion rights legal. We feel the same way. It, do it now. Congress needs to do it now in terms of permanently putting in place a, a, a clear indication that it is the law of the land that women have the ability and the right to make decisions about their reproductive care, and the government does not have the right to make those decisions for a woman. I just can't get that video out of my mind because it's it's so it's so crazy. Like it's almost like a parody, right? That's the vice president of the United States saying, do what now? When they have a majority, again, slim majority, it's gonna be really difficult to try to get the votes that you need. But you don't just accept, oh, we don't have the numbers, vote harder. You fight, you don't accept your fate. I mean, all polls are showing that the Republican Party is going to expand their majority. And you're not even gonna try, you're just gonna cross your fingers and hope you get more votes, it's truly, Ridiculous. As Mark Joseph Stern put it, if two weeks ago you had told me that Biden's response to Roe's reversal would be this feckless and torpid and pathetic, I wouldn't have believed you. It's a total abdication of leadership on an issue that sits at the heart of the Democratic Party. It's just appalling. Exactly. And it feels even worse knowing that Democrats had already pre-written emails, fundraising emails, anticipating the reversal of Roe rather than formulating an action plan. They're fundraising. They're saying vote. And they've raised millions upon millions of dollars off of this. But for what? What's your action plan? What are you going to do besides saying, I'm going to codify Roe? Because there's nothing stopping this rogue Supreme Court from deeming Roe unconstitutional in the event you codify it into law, in the unlikely event you codify it into law. So what's the plan of action to protect abortion rights long term? I mean, are they talking about expanding the court? Biden shot that down. Are they talking about Supreme Court reform at all? Term limits? No. So what's the plan to protect Roe v. Wade? Well, the plan is to vote and wait. Wait decades for the Supreme Court makeup to change, hopefully, in the Democratic Party's favor so they can appoint new justices. Meanwhile, thousands of women are literally going to die because Roe has been overturned. So this is why people are frustrated with the Biden administration. This is why people want him to step down and not run for a second term because they've proven they don't have what it takes to be leaders. Biden has proven that he doesn't 
have the capacity to meet this moment. But yet he's irked, according to a New York Times article, that people keep asking him, are you going to run again in 2024? Biden, as I said before, it's not that we are curious if you're going to run again. It's genuinely shocking to think that you would seek a second term when so many Americans are crying out for you to do something or go away. Now, here's what I have to say. I mean, two shootings on July 4th, one in a rich white neighborhood and the other at a fireworks display almost sounds like it's designed to persuade Republicans to go along with more gun control. I mean, after all, remember, we didn't see that happen at all the pride parades in the month of June, but as soon as we hit MAGA month, as soon as we hit the month that we're all celebrating, loving our country, we have shootings on July 4th. I mean, that's, oh, you know, that would sound like a conspiracy theory, right? Of course. But what's the definition of a right-wing conspiracy theory? Well, by the way, it's the news that's just six months early. That was QAnon conspiracy theorist and sitting member of U.S. Congress Marjorie Taylor Greene smugly suggesting that the July 4th shootings were false flags. Why? Well, because they happened in a rich white neighborhood. And being someone from a rich white neighborhood, she knows firsthand that rich white people are perfect. And this could never happen. I mean, that's a little bit of you telling on yourself there. The implications are interesting. But she also says that the reason why she believes that these shootings were sus is because there wasn't a shooting at one of these pride parades. Now, she says that almost as if she wanted one to happen because she spent all of last month fear-mongering and inciting hatred against queer people, screeching about how they're grooming children and whatnot, falsely so. So, you know, for her to see a shooting happen anywhere else and not at Pride, well, seems a little bit sus. Interesting. Now, this conspiracy theory that she's talking about, this whole idea of trying to fabricate these mass shootings to get Republicans to go along with more gun control, is a conspiracy theory that has been, a long, uh, been around for decades to this point. I mean, we've heard, uh, I've heard for decades from conservatives who I know personally tell me that these mass shootings are nothing more than a ploy for government to come and confiscate all of your guns. Now, there's been mass shooting after mass shooting, literally hundreds of mass shootings every single year, and yet go government still hasn't come for the guns. So, when is it going to happen? Is there ever going to be a straw that broke the camel's back? I mean, at best, after children were massacred in Uvalde, we got milquetoast bipartisan gun reform that didn't even prevent the next major mass shooting. But uh, my favorite part of that video was her um, basically saying, quote, what's the definition of a right-wing conspiracy theory? It's just the news that's six months too early. And she says this so smugly as if she is privy to knowledge that none of us are privy to. She knows more than all of us. Okay, well, if that's true, Marjorie Taylor Greene, if conspiracy theories are just news that's six months too early, can you explain where JFK Jr. is, because more than a thousand people, QAnon supporters, by the way, so maybe you know some of them, showed up to a Dallas event in 2021 in anticipation of his return, and uh, he never materialized. He was supposedly going to announce a co-presidential run with Donald Trump. 
that never happened. Oh, and after he never showed up the first time, well, Marjorie Greene's QAnon buddy showed up again in June of 2022, and he once again never showed. Hmm, interesting. Also, what about the COVID vaccines supposedly containing microchips or magnetizing people? Didn't get any confirmation of that yet, have we? Speaking of conspiracy theories, was Marjorie Taylor Greene ever proven correct about the Jewish space laser supposedly causing wildfires? What about the 2020 election being stolen? Since till this day, not a single shred of evidence has proven people like Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene correct. Trump lost more than 60 lawsuits. Some cases were dismissed by judges Trump appointed himself. But according to Marjorie Taylor Greene, a right-wing conspiracy is just news that's six months too early. That's a terrible Marjorie Taylor Greene impression, but you get the point. I mean, this is somebody who is not a serious person, but she's a member of Congress. I think that literally my seven-year-old nephew has a higher IQ than her, but yet this person makes laws that affect all of us. She votes on legislation that affects all of us. Now, she's not done because she goes on to explain more why she believes these uh, mass shootings are not real. Can't even make this stuff up. All right, but here, you still have to wonder, here's the question that I was asking, and I did ask it on my Twitter page, but I'm gonna ask you all now. It is really interesting, and I just want to point it out again. No right-wingers, no crazy gun nuts, no white Christian nationalist went out and shot up a pride parade, but yet as soon as all the hashtag F the fourth signs and slogans came out and a bunch of cities were saying terrible things about their July 4th celebrations, a bunch of Democrat cities, by the way. Well, what happened on July 4th? A bunch of shootings, terrifying Americans in all different places. But you know what? Who knows? Maybe that's conspiracy theory too. So what is this going to be? Remember remember how uh, in 2017 in Las Vegas and, you know, the Mandalay Bay shooting where, I don't know, 57 or something people were shot and killed. And then we never learned anything about that guy or why he did it. We didn't even get to read a manifesto. He had Massive amount of guns in his hotel room, shot out of the Mandalay Bay win win uh, window, down at a country music festival. We still don't know anything about the guy, except that his wife lives in, in California somewhere with like a $2 million home. <laughs> That's impressive. What does she do for a living? Who knows? You can't know anything about him. He just gets, he just got to kill a bunch of people at a country music concert, but Sorry, American people, you don't deserve to know. You don't get to know the truth. You don't get to ask questions. You just have to forget about it because you're the people you're supposed to forget. That's what they say about you. I have political consultants tell me that all the time, by the way. They're like, oh, people forget, Marjorie. No, people do not forget. They don't. They're smarter than you are. People don't forget, and we're tired of being being treated that way. It just cannot be lost on all of us that we have a sitting member of Congress who sounds identical to the host of InfoWars, Alex Jones. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. If you ever doubted yourself, if you ever thought, man, I really want to do something, but I just don't think that I'm talented enough or good enough to do said thing, just remember that if Marjorie Taylor Greene can get elected to Congress, you can do anything. Trust me, because odds are the person watching this, yes, you, 
You're smarter than Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she made it to Congress. Don't ever doubt yourself again. Now, as to her conspiracy mongering about the Las Vegas shooting, let's go back to an article from September 30th of 2021, four years after the Las Vegas shooting. This is from AP. Quote, I was wounded. Those physical wounds have healed, said Deanne Hyatt, whose daughter also was hurt and whose brother died in the October 1st, 2017 shooting. Quote, but the lasting scars for our family remain. Hyatt spoke to several hundred people during a sunrise ceremony at the Clark County Government Center in Las Vegas. She remembered her slain brother, Kurt Von Tillow, a trucker from Northern California, before a screen at an outdoor amphitheater that displayed photos of the dead. 58 people were killed that night, and two others died later. More than 850 people were injured. We continue to live the impact of all that happened that night. Four years later, Hyatt said, people thrive and people struggle to live with the physical and mental pain, and our lives are forever changed. So it's been almost half a decade, and none of these people have come back. Hyatt's brother hasn't come back to her and dropped an LOL JK. These people are gone, Marjorie. The 850 people who were wounded, they can tell you that that was very much real. But Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, she doesn't see evidence. So um, we haven't heard any updates on the shooter, therefore it must have not happened. This is, you know, the logical conclusion that you'd make if you take what she's saying at face value. Oh, well, if it's suspicious, then it must have not happened. Except you're a member of Congress. Why don't you speak to some of the victims? Maybe they can fill you in on the gaps. Maybe they can recount what happened that night. Maybe you don't know everything that happened about the event. Maybe we'll never know everything there is to know about these mass shootings. But that doesn't mean that they're not real, Marjorie. I mean, if we applied her standard to everything in life, Almost anything can be true because she doesn't need a single shred of evidence to come up with a grand conspiracy theory. I mean, I could come up with my own conspiracy theory. I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Louis Gohmert are the same person. My evidence? Um, have you ever seen them in the room together at the same time? I haven't. Now, maybe there's photographic evidence of this, but prove to me that that's not photoshopped. I mean, this is comparable levels of evidence to the conspiracies that she's espousing as well. And I even have a motive. Well, you know, uh, Louis Gohmert, when he was elected to Congress, was worried that nobody else matched his intellect in Congress. So rather than trying to elect more like-minded people, he decided to disguise himself as Marjorie Greene, put on makeup, don a wig, and run in some other random district in Georgia. And, you know, so he switches back and forth. He plays characters, sort of like Eddie Murphy in The Nutty Professor. And, you know, he just, he'll put on the wig, Go vote as Marjorie, come back, you know, put on the bald cap, vote as uh, as Louis Gohmert. For all we know, it's a completely different person who's living as Louis Gohmert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. It sounds preposterous, but I have as much evidence for this conspiracy theory as Marjorie Taylor Greene has for her conspiracy theories. So do you understand why it's problematic to apply no evidence to these theories? Because we can reason ourselves into believing any batshit insane thing and... Very obviously, Marjorie Taylor Greene has done that. So again, I just I know that I sound like a broken record, but I cannot emphasize this enough. Never let it be lost on us that this is a sitting member of Congress. She votes on laws that affect all of our lives. She has influence as a member of Congress, sway, power, and she's that fucking stupid. So we haven't been living in a post-Roe America for very long, but it's already proven to be a disaster, expectedly so. It's disastrous for women, it's disastrous for doctors, it is truly 
barbaric. And what I think will be different this time is that women now have access to social media and cell phones that have cameras so they can share their stories. It's not like this is all going to be conducted specifically in the dark. Now, women can take to social media and explain why this ban on abortion affects their lives in a negative way. It impacts their lives in a way that might cause death. So even if that is one benefit to living in the social media era, a detriment could be that women may inadvertently incriminate themselves because many women will be forced to cross state lines. And with these bounty hunting laws popping up, we don't know if they could be sharing their story as a means of educating, but end up leading to a situation where they're prosecuted. So we don't know how bad this is going to get, but just a couple of weeks in, it's already bad. It's proving to be as barbaric as we anticipated it being. So as The Hill reports, a 10-year-old girl was denied an abortion in Ohio after the Supreme Court ruled last week that it was overturning Roe v. Wade, demonstrating the tangible impacts that the high court's decision is having on patients seeking access to the medical procedure. A child abuse doctor in Ohio contacted Dr. Caitlin Bernard, an obstetrician gynecologist in Indiana, after receiving a 10-year-old patient who was six weeks and three days pregnant, the Indianapolis Star reported. That patient is now heading west to Indiana, given that an abortion ban in Ohio, which prohibits the medical procedure when fetal cardiac activity begins around six weeks, had become effective quickly after the high court issued its decision. Now, pause for a moment. This is why women denounced the six-week abortion ban in Texas, these fetal heartbeat bills because most women don't even know that they're pregnant. And in the instance of this 10-year-old child, she was three days too late, forced to cross state lines for healthcare. Why? Because a group of unelected religious zealots on the Supreme Court declared that this isn't actually an inalienable constitutional right. I mean, it's just, it's a nightmare. It is a nightmare situation. And what people don't realize is that it's not as simple as, oh, well, I don't want to have a child. I'm going to get an abortion. Even if women have the right to do that because it's their own bodies, most abortions aren't really that simple. Some are required to save a woman's life. And now that's a bit more complicated. Doctors are in this situation where they don't necessarily know what they should or shouldn't be doing. Save a life or potentially deal with the ramifications of a lawsuit, losing my medical license. Um, you know, this is a decision that doctors have to weigh out. And this is how it affected one woman who shared her experience on Instagram. So she showed this horrific image of her bruised stomach, adding, I'm just going to leave this here. This is what I look like right now. I almost died last weekend. I feel like less of a woman, all because of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. I had an ectopic pregnancy, and it was unilaterally decided by a bunch of people who don't even know me that the fetus growing inside of me that never should have been there because I did have birth control was more important than myself. I needed an abortion. I waited for days for surgery because even though my tube ruptured, they weren't allowed to treat me without speaking to lawyers, etc. I lost 1,000 cc's of blood, I had tubes shoved down my throat, and now I'm missing huge parts of myself that will affect me for the rest of my life. I'm devastated and I'm in pain. And if any of you on my feed support this fucked up shit, delete me now, because this is just wrong. So prior to Roe v. Wade being overturned, if a woman had an ectopic pregnancy, which is life-threatening, that fetus is not viable, but uh, before, Doctors just 
did what they needed to do to save that woman's life. In that instance, give her an abortion. But now they can't just intervene and give that patient health care. They have to consult with lawyers. And so when you're in this current legal gray area in states like Louisiana, where a trigger law goes into effect, but it's not technically active for a certain period of time, doctors are left wondering, we don't know what we're supposed to do. So as Greg Sargent of the Washington Post explains, as one provider puts it, the fear of facing extensive jail time and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines if medical professionals interpret the law incorrectly will lead to patients being turned away for care that they desperately need. Similarly, an emergency room practitioner testifies that medical emergencies related to pregnancy will be much harder to evaluate. Medical pros will be working under threat of prosecution for making critical life-saving decisions about how to treat patients with dangerous pregnancies and miscarriages. Still, another warns that doctors will be reluctant to direct patients to seek emergency treatment amid pregnancy complications for fear of being accused of attempting to induce abortion, possibly resulting in patient death. And one gynecologist testifies to the fear that doctors will feel forced to refuse necessary appropriate care to avoid prosecution. She notes that it's unthinkable that she may be forced to choose between my patients and my liberty. And this is healthcare we're talking about. These doctors entered the field to save lives. And now they're in a situation where legally they may not be able to intervene and save these lives. This is barbaric. Civilized countries do not subject doctors and patients to this. Civilized societies take care of people. They not only allow for abortion because it is healthcare, but they don't even put the burden on patients. I mean, think about this in the United States. Healthcare in this country is cost prohibitive. So a lot of people who want to seek out medical care might not be able to because they don't have insurance or maybe they do have insurance, but they can't afford the co-pays. So we don't even have universal healthcare and now we're forcing women to give birth. We don't even offer paid maternity and paternity leave. And now we're forcing people to give birth. What a pathetic country that we live in. What a pathetic, embarrassing country that we live in. Why? Why is this being forced upon all of us? Because just five unelected religious zealots chose that this is how it has to be now. That states can ban something that we all grew up knowing as a constitutional inalienable right. And it's not like these red states weren't chipping away at the right to an abortion, over-regulating abortion clinics, trying to find ways to chip away at it. Death by a thousand cuts. But now... It's over. We're firmly in the post-Roe era and women are going to die. Women are going to die. And it's been a couple of weeks and this is already happening. This is already a nightmare. Now, I want to go to an article from Newsweek. We're not going to dive into it, but this article profiles the owner of Mississippi's last abortion clinic, which of course was forced to close down. And it talks about Diane Durzis, who owned this clinic. And she explains that abortions, they affect everyone, including families that you wouldn't necessarily expect it to affect i.e. evangelicals, because these homeschooled, overly sheltered children aren't given proper sex education, which of course leads to unwanted pregnancies, because abstinence-only education simply does not work. It is a proven failure. And she even discusses how patients tell her that they're against abortion while they're having the procedure. And you'd be surprised how common it is for so-called pro-life, i.e. forced birthers, and evangelicals to actually get abortions, because they think, well, my, my case is different. I'm unique. I'm against abortion. But in this instance, I needed it because of health reasons, or I needed it because this was one mistake that I didn't want to make. A lot of evangelicals, they get abortions too. They won't admit it, 
but they do get abortions. And Diane is confirming that because it's different for them, right? All these other women, they're just casually being, you know, uh, risky, having promiscuous, uh, you know, un uh, unprotected sex. And that's why they're, uh, they're getting pregnant. It's their fault. It's not my fault, though. So I should be able to have an abortion. Except this is an issue that is going to affect every single person, directly or indirectly. You may be a man who can't get an abortion or get pregnant, but understand that this will still affect you. You have a sister, a daughter perhaps, a significant other who may one day need an abortion. And in some way or another, this will touch every single American. This is going to ruin lives. This is going to end lives. So, I don't know what else to say about the situation. We predicted it would be a disaster, and it is a disaster. And a really good point that Jen Uger made about bodily autonomy is that we value bodily autonomy so much that the right to bodily autonomy is almost universally recognized. I mean, think about this. This is really about saving lives, right? They, they consider fetuses human beings once it becomes a human being full baby they don't care but you know these these uh abortions must be stopped because we've got to save lives okay well do we force people to give up kidneys do we force people to donate blood against their will no we don't do that because the right to bodily autonomy is something that as human beings we acknowledge is something that we should protect but not women and it's because we never respected women in this country. They didn't get the right to vote until the 1920s. We don't value them as equal human beings. We've always perceived them culturally and legally as inferior to men. And this is just being enshrined in law now because of these religious zealots on the Supreme Court. As society advances and moves forward and acknowledges that abortion is something that is necessary in a civilized society, they're taking us backwards because they never valued women because their religious doctrine did dictates that women are unequal to men. You know, uh, women were created out of the ribcage of Adam. Eve was a part of Adam. So she's just like an appendage to him, not a full human with her own autonomy and desires and right to life as well. So this is the United States of America. Well, it's so sick because South American and Central American countries are actually very religious and very Catholic. So they're going into religious countries with almost missionary fervor to go and try to make these countries less religious. And again, there is no separation of church and state. It's a fabrication. It's a fiction. It's not in the Constitution. It's made up by secular humanists. It's derived from a single letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Convention. Of course, we should have church and state mixed together. Our founding fathers believed in that. We can go through the details of that. They established literally a church um, in Congress. Anyway, separate issue. The point, though, is that this is acting like a religion, though, isn't it? If, if we live by their own false premise of separation of church and state, then why on earth and how on earth would why would they want to go bring this belief to other countries? I mean, they're, they're almost kind of as if it was the 1400s and they're sending missionaries to the new world filled with 
despotic, nihilistic atheism and humanism. I mean, what's the thought process behind this? That was far-right propagandist Charlie Kirk incorrectly claiming that there is no separation of church and state. Now, we'll talk about why he's obviously wrong, but he's not the only far-right fruitcake to make the same exact argument. In fact, a sitting member of Congress, Lauren Boebert, made the same argument recently. Representative Lauren Boebert says she is, quote, tired of the long-standing separation between church and state in the United States adding that she believes the church is supposed to direct the government. Quote, I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. That's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like they say it does, Bobert said, earning a round of applause from the audience. Now, the audience she was speaking to was a bunch of fundamentalists, so of course they were clapping like seals. But to disprove their arguments, all you have to do is read the Constitution, and I'll make it easier for them. Let's put it up on the screen. In the very first sentence of the First Amendment, it reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, it doesn't explicitly say the words separation of church and state, and they're correct to point out that that phrase in particular came from Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist Association, but the Establishment Clause legally achieves the same thing. It creates a firewall between church and state, and for good reason. In fact, this is deeply rooted, the separation of church and state is deeply rooted in our nation's history, to borrow a phrase from them. So prior to U.S. independence, the Church of England was the state religion for many southern states. It was the church that they were forced to not just subscribe to, but pay taxes to. And a lot of people thought that that was unfair, rightfully so, because not all of them believed in that particular doctrine. Many of them were Lutherans or Presbyterians or Jewish. So they thought that it was wrong for them to have to pay taxes to a church that they didn't even believe in. Therefore, quote, after independence, there was widespread agreement that there should be no nationally established church. The Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, principally authored by James Madison, reflects this consensus. The language of the Establishment Clause itself applies only to the federal government. Congress shall pass no law respecting an establishment of religion. All states disestablished religion by 1833 and in the 1940s. 40s, the Supreme Court held that disestablishment applies to state governments through the 14th Amendment. And that is the most common, widely accepted interpretation of the Establishment Clause. That's not me saying this is how we should interpret it. That is the most common, historically accepted interpretation. But Charlie Kirk rejects that. And he, in a way, is violating his own textualist judicial philosophy, but I mean, he's inconsistent. These people don't care about anything but executing their agenda, and they will do that by all means necessary. Now, lucky for Charlie Kirk, we have a Supreme Court that seems hellbent on destroying that crucial provision of the Constitution. And, you know, because of that, he kind of answered his own question, because remember in that video, he talked about how it's a little bit bizarre that atheists are proselytizing effectively, and doesn't that kind of make them a religion too? So let me explain why atheists and secular humanists are supposedly proselytizing in a way that we see religious people spread their beliefs. It's because religion poses a danger not just to humanity and civil rights and civil liberties, but to democracy itself. And all of you are kind of being a little bit too brazen lately, I know that you're emboldened after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, but you're giving up the game 
and you're giving us all the more reason to proselytize and spread secular humanism and atheism because of the danger that you pose. In fact, I want to share a guest essay written by Catherine Stewart for the New York Times. This is someone who's an author who studied the religious right for more than a decade, and she wrote about how Christian nationalists are emboldened, and since they've been emboldened, they are now explicitly becoming more violent in their rhetoric, and they put this on full display at this year's Road to the Majority Policy Conference. Quote, the intensification of verbal warfare is connected to shifts in the Christian nationalist movement's messaging and outreach, which were very much in evidence at the Nashville Conference. Seven Mountains Dominionism, the belief that biblical Christians should seek to dominate the seven key mountains or molders of American society, including the government, was once considered a fringe doctrine even among representatives of the religious right. At last year's Road to the Majority Conference, however, there was a breakout session devoted to the topic. Much of the rhetoric on the right invokes visions of vigilante justice. This is about good guys with guns or neighbors with good eavesdropping skills heroically taking on the pernicious behavior of their fellow citizens. Among the principal battlefields will be the fallopian tubes and uteruses of women. So evangelicals in the United States have not only embraced this once fringe doctrine of Christian dominionism, i.e. Christian nationalism, but on top of that, they've amped up the violent rhetoric because they view themselves quite literally as soldiers in God's army. Therefore, they have a divine mandate to rule over all of us by force, to impose God's law on all of America, because God has chosen the United States of America. And if we're standing in the way, then God has allowed them to crush us. This is their belief. There were people at this conference who are powerful. Rick Scott was there. Former president, possibly future president, again, Donald Trump was there, referring to domestic enemies, who, of course, they have a divine mandate to conquer. So, people like this are precisely why we have the separation of church and state. It's not just because religion is dangerous and it harms individuals and it's counterfactual, but because religion, especially when it comes in the form of Christian nationalism, quite literally poses a threat to democracy itself. So when people like Charlie Kirk and Lauren Boebert talk about how really there shouldn't be a separation of church and state and that doesn't really exist, well, what they're telling you simultaneously is that they're also against democracy because to rule by an iron fist with a divine mandate from god means that you don't need to take into account what people in a pluralistic society might or might not want you just do what god wants you to do that's why these folks are so dangerous that's why the separation of church and state is crucial and we have to fight to protect it because it's not something that is always going to be a thing in the United States. The Supreme Court in their last term chipped away at it in a multitude of ways. So even if we once thought this is something that is constitutionally protected, even if it's right there explicitly in the Constitution, well, that's not going to stop these zealots from just reinterpreting it in their own extremist way. So that's why it is important for atheists to, as Charlie Kirk put it, proselytize because if we just let these religious zealots have their way there'd be no democracy there'd be no civil rights there'd be no civil liberties there'd just be theocracy
It's pretty obvious that Dr. Oz in his general election campaign against John Fetterman is up to a very rocky start, and I think it's because he is running a terrible campaign. Now, it's one thing for a leftist like me to say that, but it's another thing for Republicans to say that very same thing, and that is indeed what they are saying, because they are essentially vocalizing now that Dr. Oz is a terrible candidate, and they are losing hope as time goes on. So as Holly Otterbein of Politico explains, Mehmet Oz is trailing in polls. A key Republican has yet to endorse him since the celebrity doctor won the GOP nomination for Pennsylvania Senate more than a month ago. And Oz has gone dark on the airwaves since May 21st, even as his Democratic rival John Fetterman burnishes his brand on TV as a political outsider and paints Oz as a carpetbagger from New Jersey. This is not the general election kickoff in a pivotal Senate race that Republicans were hoping for. Quote, I don't have much confidence in their campaign, said Arnie McClure, chair of the Huntington County Republican Party. He said he's been in contact with Oz's team, but hasn't received answers to multiple queries. Oz came in a distant third in my county, so I called them up and said, you need to talk to our people to change their mind and our mind, and I'll help you do that, and I don't even hear back. What the hell? Quote, a lot of people in the GOP, both the establishment and local Pennsylvania GOP, underestimate Fetterman, said Sean Parnell, a former Republican Senate candidate who dropped out of the 2022 race amid a child custody battle in which his estranged wife alleged abuse. This is a guy that has on the left what Donald Trump has on the right. He's got a very strong populist appeal that doesn't just appeal to base Democrats. So think about how arrogant Dr. Oz's team is being. You have people in some counties saying, you're not winning over support. You came in third. You need our help. Let me help you. And Dr. Oz isn't responding to calls. This tells me that he's not running a serious campaign or he's just very arrogant. This reminds me of Hillary Clinton in 2016 not going to Michigan, just expecting to win that state by default because Democrats win that state. Uh, and there's a lot of other parallels, not to invoke Hillary Clinton arbitrarily, but there's a lot of other parallels between Dr. Oz's 2022 Senate campaign and Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. So first of all, he is overall net unfavorable Second of all, his team is basically just running a Fetterman bad campaign where they don't affirmatively make the case for themselves, rather they just hyper-focus on their opponent. And also, they're blaming a divisive primary for low numbers, saying, oh, well, you know, it was really divisive, there were attacks against us and whatnot, so, you know, it's just going to take some time for us to unify, but make no mistake about it, we are indeed unified. Except you're not really helping to unify the GOP, and that's good, by the way. I'm not complaining. I hope that he continues to fumble and, you know, mess up. But he's not doing anything to unify the GOP. If people in your party are saying you came in third in our county, let me help you, and you're ignoring their calls. Now, Fetterman, on the other hand, seems to have a two-pronged approach to his uh, campaign. First and foremost, he's focused heavily on policy. And second of all, he is going out of his way to clown on Dr. Oz at every opportunity he gets. So uh, this, for example, is a video that he has pinned to his Twitter timeline. Hey, People Magazine. Welcome to our home. Come on in. Uh, the original owner had gotten it from King George III. Come on down. We hit the basketball court around the corner.
People in Pennsylvania tell me they can't go on vacation this summer. Folks you mentioned are going off to these beautiful uh, houses, they third, second and third houses they've got hanging up. But that's not what's going on with many people in Pennsylvania. That is brutal. That shows somebody who is out of touch, who claims that he cares about working people, but doesn't really have any idea what they're dealing with. You cite, you know, high gas prices and inflation because you hear that in the news. But do you honestly understand the struggle of working Americans when you have an indoor basketball court, when you own multiple mansions? Most Americans currently can barely afford to purchase their first home and you have multiple mansions. It's just, it's astonishing how out of touch people like Dr. Oz is and all the hubris there, you know, despite, despite him being out of touch, he's not even showing any willingness to try to learn even from fellow Republicans who are saying, Hey, we don't want Fetterman to win. Let us help you. But he's ignoring them. Now, another reason why I think the true reason why Fetterman is doing so well is because he is hyper-focused on policy substance. If you look at his YouTube page, he has specific ads that he's running based on policies, legal weed, Medicare for all, LGBTQ plus rights, raising the minimum wage. And I can't play the audio for this particular ad that you're seeing on the screen, but he makes a populist appeal to workers who lost their jobs due to neoliberal policies and so-called free trade agreements like NAFTA. Where's Dr. Oz? If you look at his YouTube page, well, it doesn't really feature any TV advertisements. Rather, he just re-uploads his appearances on Fox News. And the one ad that he posted from nine days ago, I kid you not, is probably one of the worst ads I've ever seen. It features an endorsement from Louisiana Senator John Kennedy. And if somebody had chosen to endorse me in this way, I just disregard it because this isn't helpful. If anything, this is going to hurt Dr. Oz. Take a look. Well, let me think of a couple things I want to say about Oz. All right, let me just tape this. In Washington, D.C., when I feel inadequate, I just look around. On bad days, I see liars and frauds and meatheads in every direction. That's why we need Mehmet Oz in the United States Senate. Quite the ringing endorsement. <laughs> I mean, imagine including that part in the ad. You have so little to say that you include the beginning of the ad in order to make time so you can see John Kennedy uh, wonder aloud, hmm, what exactly do I say about Dr. Oz? Fuck it, I'll just wing it. Okay, he's not a meathead. We need less meatheads in DC. Support Dr. Oz. That's the best endorsement that you can come up with? Now, again, we talked about this last time, but Dr. Oz is not so subtly distancing himself from Donald Trump. So if you're avoiding Trump, you don't really want to play his ad, which is probably the strongest endorsement. So instead, you come up with this endorsement from a milquetoast Republican who probably a lot of the base views as a rhino who struggles to find a single nice thing to say about you. Really? That's all you have? unbelievable. No wonder why Republicans are losing faith in him. Now, before I previously stated that even if Dr. Oz is a terrible candidate and John Fetterman is a good candidate, that doesn't necessarily mean that John Fetterman is going to win because this is an election where Republicans have a lot of momentum and Dr. Oz could just be lucky enough to get swept up in that momentum. But things are starting to change. According to 538, Republicans still do hold a 1.6 point advantage overall, 
But on generic ballots, momentum has shifted in the Democratic Party's favor following the reversal of Roe v. Wade, with YouGov and Big Village polls giving them a four-point advantage on average. So if Democrats have an advantage now on generic ballots, actual popular Democrats like John Fetterman, they have a pretty solid advantage. I mean, he's in a good position to win. I'm not going to, you know, say definitively that John Fetterman will beat Dr. Oz because, again, name recognition didn't go a long way. A lot can change between now and November. But just think of where this race started. Originally, you know, at the start of this general election campaign between Fetterman and Oz, it was viewed largely as a toss-up. But then a USA Today and Suffolk University poll found that Fetterman had a nine-point advantage. And now you have Republicans vocalizing how frustrated they are with the campaign that Dr. Oz is running. He's just kind of saying, oh, Fetterman bad, gas prices bad, inflation bad, um, not really proposing any policy solutions, not actually making the case for himself. And any time he tries to attack Fetterman, Fetterman just hits back 10 times harder. And Fetterman is going out of his way to clown on Dr. Oz. Look at this tweet that he shared. In response to a video that Dr. Oz posted on Twitter, Fetterman writes, pro tip, don't film an ad for your PA Senate campaign from your mansion in New Jersey. Yeah, so you have John Fetterman doing that. Meanwhile, Dr. Oz is trying to cobble together some Hillary-esque I'm with him campaign. And it's just, it's falling flat. I'm, I, I'm sure he's proud of his Fox News appearances, but usually candidates utilize their YouTube page to post their campaign advertisements to explain specifically what policies they would institute to help their future constituents. But Dr. Oz isn't doing that. He's essentially just saying, hey, I'm a Republican. See, I'm on Sean Hannity again. Not working in this race. And, and, you know, if you want to win a campaign, if you want to run a dynamic political campaign, you've got to be able to adapt. And to the extent that Dr. Oz has adapted, he's done worse. Because, again, when you make a pivot in the general election and you move away from Donald Trump, the person who arguably got you to where you are right now, you're going to piss off a lot of voters. So the odds of you, you know, bringing Republicans together after you spat in the faces of their base, people who like Donald Trump, I mean, you're making that more difficult. And, you know, if anything, you could try to put forward some policy ideas, but Dr. Oz is an out-of-touch oligarch, so he has no idea what people want to hear. So he's just saying Fetterman bad, and then whenever he brings up Fetterman, Fetterman beats him over the head and clowns on him because Dr. Oz is a clown. So I love to see this. You know, I hope that he continues to face plant. I love that Republicans already have buyer's remorse for Dr. Oz. Um, hopefully, if anyone wins, I hope that it's John Fetterman. But this just kind of gives me hope that, you know, not all is, is lost. Maybe there's a chance that some horribly out of touch, bad faith actors, opportunists won't become members of the U.S. Senate. You know, here's here's hoping to that. You're doing a very good job for the Koch brothers who, who support you and fund you. Incorrect. And the, oh, Another incorrect statement. So Why don't you do some reading? That will deny climate. I can't believe you want to come on TV and just say black is white, up is down. You're wrong. You're not a climate scientist. Again, th Listen this book to the will experts. teach you how to think right, clearly Alex, about the issues. Guys, we could talk about this. my time. Guys, we could talk about this and argue about lies. this first. You just watched environmental activist and journalist Betsy Rosenberg call out Koch-funded fossil fuel shill Alex Epstein, and he was 
so mad that she called out his ties to the Koch brother, he decided to take to Twitter to not only post this L, but call her a liar. He writes, Betsy Rosenberg on News Nation is lying about me because she has no argument against the benefits of fossil fuel energy. Now, we're going to watch the whole clip, and as you're going to see, she has all the arguments and he has no arguments. In fact, in his book that he was trying to hawk on that program before she shut him down, he literally is calling for more fossil fuels. You heard that right. At this time in 2022, when the planet is burning, he's saying we need more fossil fuels, more coal. That's good. That's the moral argument that I'm going to make as a philosopher. Yeah. He's a Coke-funded philosopher. So, more about Alex Epstein from Accountable. Epstein is the founder of the Coke-funded for-profit think tank Center for Industrial Progress, which pushes pro-fossil fuel rhetoric and solicits donations to fund its anti-environment work. Again, the enterprise is a for-profit think tank. In 2016, Epstein's group was included in a Massachusetts lawsuit against Exxon for misleading the public on climate change and fossil fuels. Responding to the Massachusetts Attorney General's request, for his emails in the case, Epstein wrote, fuck off, fascist, and argued for Exxon's ability to spread disinformation. Epstein's dodgy history of anti-climate activism includes denying climate change, dismissing concerns over climate catastrophes, and pushing for increased fossil fuel usage, even claiming it is a moral crime to oppose the oil and gas industry. Jesus Christ. Charging exorbitant speaking fees, a usual rate of $23,500, and speaking to some of the biggest oil corporations in the country, opposing climate-conscious flaring reductions and the Paris Climate Accords by American Petroleum Institute, providing pro-oil anti-climate talking points to officials including Texas regulators and Governor Greg Abbott following the Texas blackouts. So this individual is, I think, the quintessential corporate shill. He is a talking head for the fossil fuel industry, and that's how he made a name for himself. But yet he's claiming that Betsy Rosenberg is trying to smear him because she doesn't have an argument. This is corporate shilling parading around as pseudo-intellectualism. And it's clownish. And as you're going to see, he looks like a clown. Hence why Betsy Rosenberg was easily able to slap him around whenever he brought up any idiotic fossil fuel talking wins. This is genuinely incredible to watch. Take a look. I cannot believe in mid-2022 when 99.9% of all climate scientists, which I don't think you are, Alex, I saw that you studied computer science in college, doesn't make you an expert on climate change. I'm not a scientist either, but I believe science. And we have a problem in this country with eco-illiteracy and science illiteracy. And this kind of just really distorting of the situation does not help. And we have no time to waste. I mean, do you not understand what's happening? I was just in Rome last week. The river is so low, you can, it's, it, you can almost see the sand. They declared a state of emergency. They call it state of calamity there because the Lazio region, which Rome is in, uh, is so dry and that they, a heat wave just went across Europe twice. We just went through two heat waves here while I was away. I mean, records are, are, are breaking and, and temperatures are melting. It's just beyond belief. We have 420 parts per million of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere right now. It's gone up exponentially quickly uh, compared to you know uh, what happened before the last 20 to 50 years. I mean, what about that is normal? And and by the way, every time you see okay, I weather, need some time to respond because it's a short a second. Alex, Alex, I'll give you time to respond. Let's let Betsy finish what she was saying. And I just we'll get I just want to say. Thank you. There's a signature. When you, see, when you see somebody in Oklahoma or Texas who's been hit by a tornado, a hurricane, a fire, 
um, extreme wildfires are a huge problem. When they say we've never seen anything like this, we've never we can't prepare for this. We can't build back. Whole towns and parts of cities have been leveled like Hiroshima bombs from the, the storms on steroids that we've never seen before. What about that is a joke? Alex? Not very funny. Yeah, so, so I think... You're not taking uh, it seriously. Well, well, I mean, intellectually, the way you're approaching it is a joke, and it, but it's not a funny joke. And so I, I mentioned at the beginning, you're ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels, which has caused an energy crisis. You didn't address that at all. As I've pointed out to you before, you're ignoring the fact that we're actually safer than ever from climate-related disasters. This is documented by nonpartisan organizations. You're evading this. The climate catastrophe movement evades this. It's just a fact that climate-related disaster deaths are down 98% over the last maybe century. On planet, fuels, maybe on another planet, not Earth. No, hold Sorry, on. I get, I get to speak. I thought I was going to get to Alex, Alex. This is, this is documented. Let, I'm let happy Alex to finish. send you the the references in, in fossil future, it's very, very important for, for us to know that we're safer from climate than ever because of fossil fuels. The fact that we've warmed the planet one degree does not mean a catastrophe unless you have this primitive religious view that change is evil and hellish just because we, we caused it. The earth is a much better place. We're safer than ever from climate. And the only thing going wrong is the energy policies that you support are starving people around the world. All right, Betsy, very quickly, about 10 seconds. You're you're doing a very good job for the Koch brothers who who support you and fund you. Incorrect. Another incorrect (laughs) statement. Why don't you do some reading? That will deny climate. I can't believe you want to come on TV and just say black is white, up is down. You're wrong. You're not a climate scientist. Again, this book will teach you how to think clearly about the issues. Guys, we could talk about this. Guys, we could talk about this and argue about this for some time. Thank you Dangerous lies. She did an incredible job considering it's really difficult to argue against people who are saying something that is so untrue, it's borderline delusional. Like what he's saying flies in the face of empirical reality. And just to kind of give you a little bit more of a sense uh, as to who this individual is, in that book that he was trying to promote, his core argument is that the negative aspects of greenhouse gas emissions will be outweighed by all of the good that fossil fuel causes. And we actually, quote, require more oil, coal, and natural gas, you know, just like the fossil fuel industry wants good little puppet. Now, he'd claim that he's not a climate change denier because he acknowledges that fossil fuels have warmed the planet. Uh, But you have to understand this is a new form of denialism. Climate deniers, the oil and gas industry has shifted the goalposts. They can no longer just deny the existence of anthropogenic climate change. So what they say now is, sure, climate change is happening, but maybe we shouldn't take this action. Maybe we should invest in more fossil fuels because that will eventually be the solution to climate change, or it'll come up with a fossil fuel type solution to climate change. It's basically advocating for pouring gasoline on a fire that's already existing when we have a limited amount of time, ignoring everything that the uh, scientific community has to say. And it's just, it's it's laughable. Like, this is clown shit right here. This is pro-apocalypse shit right here that this shill for the Koch brothers and fossil fuel industry is espousing. And I've got to admit, overall, even if Betsy Rosenberg did a really phenomenal job, I'm torn by these kinds of segments, by these kinds of debates. And I'm torn by the whole model of News Nation, which is a relatively new uh, news network to my understanding because they take a CNN approach, but just like they're more explicit about it. They go right down the middle. We are not left. We're not right. We want you to hear both arguments. And so that facilitates these types of debates. But the problem is that, I mean, these 
aren't all debatable issues like trans rights for example should they or shouldn't they be allowed to exist that's not debatable racism you know some people are saying that racism you know doesn't exist any longer others are saying that it does exist does institutional racism exist do we have to have this debate i mean the evidence is on the side of people who are living in this reality. So when it comes to whether or not climate change is real and we should do anything about it, I think that having these conversations is inherently troubling because this is not a debatable issue. The debate is over. The question is, do we act or do we let the world burn so that way people like Alex Epstein and his funders in the fossil fuel industry can can continue to make lots of profits off of fucking up the one habitable planet that we have access to. So when it comes to issues like climate change, I'm sorry, but this is not a debatable issue. I don't think that any climate denier should be platformed at this stage in time because it's tantamount to supporting mass death of not just human beings, but all kinds of species on this planet. That's what this individual right here is advocating for by supporting not just the fossil fuel industry, but literally advocating for more fossil fuel extra extraction. So, you know, I get the appeal of these kinds of news outlets because you see CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and you see how partisan they are. So you have these new, you know, uh, competitors come along and, and they try to claim that they're not partisan and they're going to give you both sides, but not both sides are equal in this particular instance. You know, making an argument about marginal tax rates, that's a debatable issue. Talking about, you know, what we should do to alleviate you know the cost of tuition in the united states that's something that's debatable there are various solutions that you could probably apply but debating whether or not we should take action to literally save all life on the planet i just feel like that's not debatable it's in humans best interest and in humanity's best interest to never platform shills like this but still you know if you have the opportunity to speak and get the point across as betsy rosenberg did then i think that as lefties as people who want to just have a planet sure we should take you know them up on that opportunity but news networks like news nation to push this like neutrality when objectivity facts is what matters most i just it feels gross and i wish that they wouldn't do that don't give platforms to people who profit off of the destruction of earth Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.